Well, good morning. Like 13 of you are here. That's not any good. Good morning. That was a little bit better. Not great, but we'll work on it. That's fine. Uh, my name is Justin Craig. I am the family minister here at Windsor Road Christian Church, and I am excited to be back on our stage this morning. Um, generally, on Sunday mornings, I'm either with our preschoolers or our elementary age kids, our middle schoolers or our high schoolers, and I got to tell you, it's it's great to be in a room with you guys this morning. So uh, I'm, I'm I didn't mean that in a bad way. I mean, you guys are all like, I know my kids. I know how you meant that. Okay. But no, I, I love spending time with, with your kids, and I love being able to be here and, and just kind of share what's on my heart. And uh, that's one of the things that I love about uh, our senior pastor, Randy, is whenever I get the opportunity to preach, he's just, share what's on your heart. And while, you know, this message isn't the only thing on my heart, because we got, you know, 225 cardboard boxes over there that we're about to rip apart the worship center with and have, you know, thousands of people come through our doors in the next week. That's on my mind too, and we still have places to volunteer. And if you can't volunteer, uh, there's candy drop-off. If you need, if you want to feel like you're helping out, candy's always a great thing. That's my plug for the maze, happening Wednesday and Thursday. Come check it out. Anyway, so uh, that, that's not the only thing on my heart either. It's, uh, it's this scripture that we're going to be in this morning. But before we get there, anybody else a fan of reality TV shows? Just me. Awesome. So let me, let me share with you. So we got about 10 years ago, uh, we were in our first uh, ministry position in Moline, Illinois, and uh, we uh, didn't have, you know, all the bells and whistles. Uh, and so we had TV, but it was only when the wind didn't blow uh, because we had the antenna. And the only thing we could get was reality TV shows because 10 years ago, they ruled the world. And uh, so we were into Amazing Race, uh, Survivor. But the one we really got into was The Biggest Loser. We really liked this show. If you don't know the premise of the show, it's a weight loss and health improvement show. Uh, they bring in some people that are overweight and they come in and they, they work out with them. They show them how to cook for themselves and they deal with some emotional issues that they're dealing with in their lives. It's kind of a great show. We thought it was a great thing. And so every season, we would sit down in front of the TV. This would be our date night. Uh, we would sit down in front of the TV, and we would watch this. Every time it was on, we just, we just loved it. It was great. But one night, as the season premiere was going to be coming up, so was the season premiere of Stephanie's Bible study at the church. So she was heading to that. And I said, don't worry, I'll fill you in. And she's like, okay, well, that'll be great. I'm, I'll, I'll head to church. All right, see you later. Door closes. I'm sitting on the couch, finishing up Wheel of Fortune because, yes, I am 85 years old. And I will always want to buy an E. Why people buy U's? That doesn't make any sense. You buy an E. If you're going to spend money, you spend money on an E. All right? But anyway, well, I'm sitting there watching Wheel of Fortune. It's wrapping up. They're getting to the final puzzle where they stand there awkwardly with the weird circle around their head. And they're solving the puzzle and everything. And I'm like, you know, I'm kind of hungry. You know, I had dinner almost an hour ago. I mean, I'm starving. So I go to the kitchen. I raid the cabinets. Nothing in there looks interesting to me. So I open up the freezer in hopes to find some pizza rolls or some chicken nuggets because those are my jam. I didn't find any of those in there either, but all I found was ice cream. Okay. So I take ice cream out. and I, Now, there's something you should know about me and ice cream. I, I like the taste of it, but it's not something that I eat all the time. I don't, I don't dive into it every night. It's not, it's not my weakness. Now, if somebody had a big bucket of fried chicken, I was in, I'm ready to go because that is my jam. Chicken nuggets, anything, anything that's fried, it's just great. But ice cream is something that I don't do all the time. 
But when I do ice cream, I ice cream hard, okay? So we're not talking about like the little tiny portion size bowl. No, no, we're talking about the big giant tub that we wash like clothes in, you know, on days. And so I'm scooping ice cream into this thing and finally we're out of ice cream, so I have to stop. And so then I'm like, you know, the vanilla's missing something. Chocolate syrup, right? So I go to our fridge, because that's where we keep our chocolate syrup, as should you. And I get the chocolate syrup out, and I'm squeezing it into the bowl. You can't tell that there's ice cream in it anymore. And I'm still going, there's still something missing here. We got half a bag of chocolate chips. So I dump them in. Now we have no bag of chocolate chips, and I am ready to watch a weight loss show. I'm so excited. <laughs> so I go in. I sit down. Pat and Vanna are waving to the camera. Why they do that, I don't know. Are they, do they, are the producers going, there are people waving at you, so make sure you wave. And so they're just standing at the end with their perfect teeth and their weird clothes and anything. So here it comes. And instead of like the big hover around the compound where the contestants come, or instead of like the bios of, of the, of the people coming to the ranch to work out, out comes just one of the trainers, Bob Harper. He comes jogging out comes right up to the screen, right up, right up to the uh, camera, and he looks at me. He looks deep into my soul, and I'm not going to lie, this is 100% true. He looks at the camera, and he goes, hey, you, sitting there with your big bowl of ice cream. <laughs> Looking out the window, going, that van was not there yesterday. Maybe Stephanie signed me up for this, and this was just to get me out of the house. You know, I don't know what's going on here. And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, Bob? Yeah? He's like, let's put down that ice cream and let's work out. I'm like, okay. So I set my bowl down, and he's like, we're going to start with squats. I was like, okay. And I'm like, you know, oh, you know, because I haven't done a squat in six years. And so I'm sitting there. This was the big surprise of the season. You know how they always say, something new is coming. They say that every episode, and it's kind of something boring. Um, but this was the something new. They're not just going to train the people at the ranch. They're going to train the people at home. There's millions of viewers watching home. Brilliant idea, but except if you want to eat ice cream, this is not the show to watch. So here I am sweating like crazy in the middle of my house. Our neighbors are probably like, this guy's nuts. And so they're like, we see his big bowl of happiness sitting there. Why is he not eating that? So I'm doing my squats. I'm doing crunches and all this kind of thing. I'm running stairs in our house between commercials and all this kind of stuff. I was like, this is nuts, right? But in that moment, I felt compelled to do something different. <laughs> Stephanie was very surprised when, I, when she got home, and the bowl of ice cream was, had like a few bites out of it, and I'm dripping with sweat. She's like, so, how was the biggest loser? And I'm like, we're not watching that show ever again. Bob doesn't endorse ice cream eating. <laughs> and she's like, well, yeah, of course he doesn't. He's a trainer. But I felt compelled to get up and do something different. I felt compelled to change my habits. And so it made me think, if someone that I have never met before and have no relationship with can put a charge in me that will change my current status, then why, when Jesus calls me into action, do I hesitate? Why am I willing to be challenged by someone I don't even know, have never met, but when Jesus calls me into something, do I pause why am I willing to listen to and follow voices that have no clear direction, but when Jesus, who conquered death for our benefit, calls me into something, I pause, I delay, and I hesitate. This morning, we're going to be reading through a passage of Scripture that calls us into action. 
I think it's important that we don't hesitate. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Luke chapter 10. If you're looking for the Bible in front of you, it is on page 869. If you don't have a Bible at home to call your own, just take the one in front of you. We got, we got plenty. If you need one, take that home. Now this is a story that you might have heard before. If you've ever attended VBS as a child, if you've ever even lived next to a church or seen a church banner, you might know the story about the Good Samaritan. It's everywhere, right? This is a story that just kind of exploded onto the scene and went everywhere because it's so applicable. But I think a lot of the time we focus on the wrong things here in the scripture. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, this is what our scripture says. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desired to justify himself. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers, Jesus said? The one who showed mercy said the lawyer. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So the scene opens up and there's a lawyer standing there asking Jesus a question. Now it's a valid question, right? It's a question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then so Jesus replies back with a question and he says, well, what, what does the law say? How do you read it? He says, well, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, do this and you will live. But then he asks a second question that I think we ignore. He asks, who is my neighbor? So then Jesus replies with the very famous parable of a man being beaten in the middle of a famous road. Two people come by both a priest and a Levite, a church worker, and both of them pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan man comes to him. Spends time with him. You see, the priest, he comes down the road and he sees him, but he passes by on the other side. The Levite, the church worker, comes. He sees the man and he passes by on the other side, but the Samaritan man comes to the man and he sees him, but he doesn't just see him, he looks at him. Instead of passing on the other side, he drops what he's going to do and does what he should do. You see, this stretch of road was not a place you went for a nice afternoon stroll. It's a desert. You don't really stroll anywhere. And this, this stretch of road is very windy and very prone for attacks against people to happen on it. This is a very famous road that people know about. 
And so the Samaritan, the thing that we can gather from this information is that the Samaritan was on his way to do something else. When he saw the man, he looked at him and his agenda changed. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a sermon on this once. And his questions about this uh, are right up here on the screen. He says, the first two men, the priest and the Levite, ask this first question. If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan man, he says to himself, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So here's the big idea. Here's where we're going. Here's where we're traveling. So if you don't hear anything else, this is the important part to hear. It's that love does not allow limits on the definition of our neighbor. Love does not allow limits on the definition of a neighbor. And I think there's two key phrases in here, two key things that we need to really focus on. I think the second one, we normally understand and we normally get the second one. But the first one could be something that we just brush by. So here's the first thing I want us to remember about the scripture, and it is that selfish motives will always offer limited compassion. Selfish motives will always offer limited compassion. Now, this question at the beginning of what must I do to inherit eternal life is a valid question. But the second question, who is my neighbor? This is not a loving question at all. This is a limiting question. Asking Jesus to define his neighbors means that he doesn't feel the need to be neighbors with everyone. He wants Jesus to justify his system of exclusion He's asking a question that we should be a little bit uncomfortable with. To think for a second that a human being could be a non-neighbor is a thought that should disturb us and bother us. Jesus knows this is a disturbing question, so he tells the man standing there, this Jewish lawyer, he tells him a, a, a story that would bother him, that would make him uncomfortable. You see, to hear that a Samaritan would be the hero of Jesus' story would have been a boiling point for the Jewish leader. And to hear that a Jewish man would have even needed or wanted the help of the Samaritan man would have been crazy uncomfortable for this lawyer. You see, they didn't like each other. The Jews always felt like the Samaritans were never going to measure up to being fully people the way that the Jews were. They hated each other. And so the question of who is my neighbor is where the lawyer wants Jesus to draw some lines, draw out some boundaries, and give him an excuse to not love everyone the same. And you know what? We do the same things. We really do. When we see a need or we see somebody that needs to be a neighbor, that needs to have a neighbor, that needs to have camaraderie, we start internalizing questions. And not just about the situation but about the person. We start asking ourselves questions inside of our minds that will help us develop an unreal reality for us. You see, we start asking the wrong questions just like the lawyer did, and sometimes we can forget that the person that we are questioning is a human being and is a child of God. When we ask the wrong questions, we end up with misguided answers. And when we live with misguided answers, we end up with misguided directions. And when we go with misguided directions, we end up taking ourselves out of the servant role and into the judge's seat. We know that's not our seat to sit in. It's too big for us. But as we sit in the seat of judgment, we offer comparison, not compassion. 
We ask what will happen to me instead of what will happen to him. We offer abandonment instead of action. We will leave before we show love. We'll be judges instead of being Jesus. We'll leave them for whatever is left instead of doing what is right. This one may sting a little bit. It does me. We'll tell them we'll pray for them and then we forget about them. Now I know that prayer is one of the most valuable resources that we have, but sometimes as Christians we can act like it's the only resource we have. Comparison and ignorance, abandonment and judgment will always build boundaries, never bridges. No one ever says, no one has ever said, you know what, because you judge me, I love Jesus more. Nobody's ever said that, that would be ridiculous. Nobody has ever said, you know what, because you left me by the side of the road. Man, I found Jesus there. I just want to come say thanks. Thanks for leaving me to die by myself. No one has ever said that before. But a lot of the time we say, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? I think for us, I'll speak for myself first, but I think for us as a group, we can build up for ourselves an excuse Rolodex. You remember Rolodexes? used to sit on a desk. It would have all kinds of contacts and names in it. When we started in ministry 10 years ago, uh, we started at this smaller church, and, and uh, the assistant at the church, she had put together a Rolodex for me of all the people in the church. And I was like, thanks, this means a lot. And so I'm able to flip through and able to find somebody's number and name very quickly. And I think we do this with our excuses as well. And our excuse Rolodex could sound something like, well, I don't know what to do. When I see somebody in need, when I see somebody that needs a neighbor, I don't know what to do. Maybe you say, I can't help them the way they need help. Maybe you'll say, I don't know their whole story, but remember that Jesus knows our whole story and loves us anyway. So there's that to build on. Maybe for you, you're really blunt and you're just, I don't want to help somebody else. I'm tired of helping somebody else. They need to help themselves. Maybe you'll say, I don't have the time. Or again, maybe you'll say, I'll pray for you. And now I know, I know that boundaries are important. I know that setting up limitations in our own life so that we can be there for our families, so that we can be there to serve the Lord, I understand that. But a lot of the time, our boundaries don't do that for us. We set up boundaries not for ourselves, not to limit ourselves, but to limit the help that we can give to others. And I know each of us need boundaries in our lives so that we don't go insane. I understand that. But here's what I would say about boundaries. If our plans in life do not include a margin for the Holy Spirit to move us and then for us to act on it, then our boundaries are not positive, but they are negative. There's a book written by a guy named Tom Davis. It's called Red Letters. I know I've shared this quote in here before, but it's just so, it fits so well here. He says this, We spend most of our time trying to protect what we have, fearing what would happen if that went away. When we do this, we become shackled to our possessions. In essence, we limit our range of motion. We can't reach far enough to offer compassion because our arms are too busy holding all that we own. Now, he's not simply speaking about our stuff. He's speaking about our time, about our thoughts. Now, I know that there's also a fine line between setting priorities and boundaries and limits on ourselves and always continually obeying God's law and plan for our lives. 
And it's just kind of a fine line. And sometimes they get a little bit messy. And so I love what Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, Crazy Busy. He says, setting priorities can be difficult. Sticking to them can seem impossible. But Jesus understands the challenge and models the behavior. He lived with unrelenting demands and unbelievable pressure. He also knew that if, there were, if he were to accomplish all the purposes God had for him, he would have to pass up 10,000 good purposes other people had for his life. You see, it's not just about going down the path that God wants, but it's about helping the man on the path. So when we actually unpack this question of who is my neighbor, we can uncover a pretty ugly and deep sin issue in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.15, the Apostle Paul writes, And Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, sin causes us to shrink our worlds down to the confines of our wants, our needs, and our feelings. Sin is self-obsessed, self-focused, and makes me quest for my own control. Paul David Tripp writes about this. He says, The DNA of sin is selfishness. And if the DNA of sin is selfishness, then sin, in its truest form, is antisocial. And if sin is antisocial in its truest form, then at one point or another, we will dehumanize others in our lives. He says people will either become vehicles or obstacles. People will become vehicles when they are there to help us get what we want. And people are obstacles when they stand in the way of what we want. You see, who is my neighbor is not just a selfish question, but also a sinful question that wants to do nothing but limit our capacity and responsibility for compassion and love. So yes, selfish motives will always offer limited compassion. But that's not the only thing in our scripture this morning. I think the other nugget of information that Jesus wants us to have is that selfless actions will always offer unlimited love. Have you ever selflessly done something for somebody else? For us, I know that if I were to jump in and do the dishes, which we should, you know, call ESPN to see, uh, but if I jump in to do the dishes, my wife feels overjoyed because I am serving in a way that she knows that I don't love, and it's something that she would do if it wasn't done. And she feels loved by that. So selfless actions will always offer unlimited love. You see, the man is robbed on a familiar stretch of road. He's laying there half dead. And then all of a sudden, in the distance, the perfect person's coming down the road. It's a priest. He's laying there half dead, maybe incoherent a little bit, and he sees the figure coming down to the road, and he's thinking, yes, oh, you've got to help me, please. But the priest sees him, he passes by on the other side. See, that was the first glimpse of hope that was moved away. But then the Levite, the church worker comes, and now the Samaritan is again joined because he knows this is a church worker coming to him. But again, same thing, he passes by on the other side. And as this Jewish man lays in the road, two major hopes have gone away. He now sees a Samaritan man walking towards him. And I wonder if he thought, oh no. 
But instead, the Samaritan man doesn't just walk towards him. He doesn't just see him, but he looks at him. He sees and shares in the pain in this man's eyes and in this man's body. He forgets his own agenda. He kneels down in front of him and he helps him. And he doesn't just help him there, but he helps him to restore his health. He's moving him to an inn to where he can be taken care of. And basic room and board for that, for two denarii, would have gone for two weeks. The average hotel here in Champaign for a two-week stay for basic room and board, $1,600. Just to put it in perspective for you. It doesn't include medical expenses. You see... The question of if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me is 100% wrong, but it's the one we ask almost 100% of the time. But if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? You see, we should never be seeking clarity on who our neighbors are, but we should be seeking clarity on what their needs are. Now, I've taught this next principle to lots of different types of crowds. Um, I've taught it to kids and teenagers and adults. And this is a principle that I lived by for a really, really, really long time. And maybe you've heard it before. It's called random acts of kindness. Anybody ever heard of random acts of kindness before? Great. There's a couple of you. First service, it was like nobody was even listening. So I'm glad you guys are here. Random acts of kindness. This is something that my mom instilled in me. She goes, Let's, you got you to show some random acts of kindness. And the more I digest that, that's one of the foolish things I've ever heard in my life. Jesus doesn't call us to be randomly kind. He calls us to be intentionally kind. And and in our world right now, you don't even have to be a lot kind. You just got to be a little bit of kind. Because kindness is an obscure thought in our world. You see, the Good Samaritan is not a story of random kindness, but intentional humanity. Intentional grace, intentional love, and intentional compassion. I read a story this week. Maybe you read it too, but I thought it was helpful to share in this environment. There's a little girl in Michigan. Her name is Sunshine. She's five years old. And Sunshine uh, came home from school one day. She's a kindergartner at her school. She comes home from school one day, and her grandmother noticed that she's emptied her piggy bank. Just kind of emptied it out and started sorting it. Pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, uh, maybe the random half dollar, uh, and then the dollars. She's thinking, oh, she must be doing a project for school or something like that. And so her grandmother sees her counting, and she's counting very, very emphatically. She's very, very into this counting. She's writing it down on a piece of paper, writing out how much she has. And her grandma's like, oh, that's so nice. She's counting her money. She's, she's saving. She's doing something. This is great. But then Sunshine goes into the kitchen, grabs a plastic baggie, and loads all of her money into her plastic bag. She puts it in her backpack. Grandmother thinking, I hope she's not being bullied. Um, I wonder what's going on. Why is she taking this money to school? So she asked her about it. And Sunshine said, I'm taking the money to school because my friend can't buy milk. I always cry. There's always something that I cry about. <sighs> and so she said, that's very noble of you. That's, that's very kind of you. She says, I'm going to buy her milk as long as I can. So grandma has a conversation with the teacher. And the teacher said, actually, half of our class 
can't purchase the 45-cent carton of milk each day. And so Grandma and Sunshine wanted to do more than just help one friend. So they set up a GoFundMe page. Their goal was to raise $700. Because she had done the math and had said, this would help, this would help the kids in my class be able to get milk for the entire semester. So up until Christmas, they would be able to have milk. The page has now raised $4,000. And their new goal is $5,000 because, because she saw a bigger need. And she said, there's a lot of kids in my school that can't buy milk. So a kindergartner is buying milk for her school for the entire year. That is intentional kindness. That is intentional grace. This is intentional love. You see, the Samaritan man tends to this Jewish man's immediate needs, but he doesn't just do that. He takes responsibility for his restoration to health. So what does being a neighbor look like? Might look like State Farm. Um, I know you guys were thinking that. I thought about dressing in like the khakis and the, the, the red shirt or whatever they wear it there. But what does a neighbor look like? The parable may not tell us how to love our neighbors as ourselves, but it creates a reality that challenges our passivity and our self-interest. And I want to be 100% clear here. We're not talking about a to-do list to earn salvation. We don't believe that we can do anything to earn salvation, but that Jesus has already done the earning for us when he died for us on the cross. But our actions are a response out of our relationship with Jesus. And so we show compassion because we are shown compassion frequently. We show selflessness because we were shown Jesus' selfless sacrifice for us. We show that love has no boundaries because Jesus' love for us has no boundaries. Look at us in this room. We're a bunch of messed up people. We are. We all bring our junk in. We all bring our suitcase of sin in with us. We carry it everywhere we go. If we were to really be honest and open in our conversations here, we would realize that we are all messed up. We all have these hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And so we are a perfect example that Jesus' love has no boundaries. There are no limits, no walls, no exceptions. So no, we are not earning our salvation, but we are following in the footsteps of the one who saves us. So what does being neighbor-minded look like? It looks like Jesus. Our senior pastor, Randy, always says that at Windsor Road, the answer is always Jesus. And it is. What does being a neighbor look like? It looks like Jesus. This is not about living a to-do list life. There is no to-do list in here. Jesus doesn't give us five points of things to do as we love our neighbor as ourselves. Because a to-do list, it ends. It becomes a done list when we're done with it. And we put it aside. We throw it away. It's not about living a to-do list life, but it's about living a transformed life. To do this, offer places to stop. Transformed lives offer places to serve. Places to show compassion, places to show love. 
You see, the first church your neighbor visits is your driveway. The founder and president of Awakening Evangelism, his name is Maddie Montgomery. He used to be the lead singer in a heavy metal Christian band. He writes, or he says in a sermon that he was giving at a church several weeks ago, he said this, and I thought it was brilliant. He says, the greatest threat to the church is not persecution, but pacification. The greatest threat to the church is not that we'll be like, oh man, I'm bummed, you know, somebody's making fun of me for being a Christian again. That's not the greatest threat to the church. The greatest threat is when we hear what we're supposed to do and we hesitate and we stop and we pause and we limit. We set up boundaries. You see, love does not allow limits on the definition of a neighbor. Our questions need to not be, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But if I stop to help this man, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So what is God whispering to your heart right now? Maybe if you're like me, God doesn't whisper to me a whole lot. He hits me in the head with a pan because uh, it's loud and it hurts. It's revealing. But what is God whispering to your heart right now? Maybe a better question is who is God whispering to your heart right now? Who is God asking you to be more selfless with? Maybe for you it is your actual neighbor. Maybe it's the neighbor who just moved in. Or maybe it's the neighbor that drives everybody crazy. Maybe it's the neighbor you've not met yet. Maybe it's the neighbor you can't remember the name of. Who is God asking you to be more selfless with? Maybe for you, being selfless needs to apply in the home and you need to be more selfless with your children or with your spouse. Because I know from personal experience that selfishness finds a way into the home and will always find a way into the heart. Who is God asking you to be more selfless with? Maybe it's your coworker. Maybe it's someone in your class at school. Maybe it's the bus driver. Maybe it's the mailman. Maybe it's your teacher or professor. Maybe it's everyone. Because if somebody has a pulse, they need a neighbor. We need to neighbor without boundaries. And we need to choose intentional kindness and love. I love the scripture that Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy, fearful of something. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, and a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-discipline. He gives us a spirit of power, and a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-discipline. He gives us a spirit of power. And he gives us a spirit of love and of self-discipline. You see, God has a plan for your neighbor. God has a plan for your neighborhood. He's got a plan for your street. He's got a plan for the people you don't like. God's got a plan for the people in our schools. God's got a plan for the people in our community. He's got a plan for this world, and it's you. And it's time we stop hesitating. I didn't share this first service, so this is off script, so good luck. Second service always gets these. This is great because I think through it again. About every couple of months, we get comment cards back from first-time visitors here at the church. We get comment cards back. And, and this last round that we got were overly impo- positive. Like, they were great. And it was like, oh, your guest services team is wonderful. I was greeted at the door. I was greeted in the parking lot. Before I got in, I had a smile on my face. We were greeted at the playground this week, and we love that. So we came to church on Sunday. 
We feel like this is a place we could be invested in. This is a place that we could invite our friends to. This is a place where we could belong. And I got I to gotta tell you, as, as one of the pastors here on staff, I love that. But one thing that breaks my heart is that our workplaces don't look like that. Our schools don't look like that. Because we hesitate. So the question is, Will we pause and try and process through all this? Will we hesitate? Or will we go and neighbor without boundaries? Let's pray.